0: You know, looking back on my life, if if I go back to my middle school and high school years, it's amazing to me in hindsight, how much of my identity was tied to comparison. Comparing myself to other students, you know, friends, peers, other athletes, Uh, It's an incredible thing. And, And when I was coming through elementary school, middle school, high school, like I was largely a year younger than everyone in my class. I was always skinnier, smaller, slower. And I was like one of the last People in my class to hit puberty, you know, to hit that growth spurt and it begin to develop adult characteristics. I started kindergarten when I was four, graduated high school when I was 17, graduated college when I was 38, and uh, so no, not really, but uh, my birthday just kind of fell at an odd time. So so my parents had the choice of like sending me to school or keep me home. They sent me to school, so I was always one of the youngest, if not the youngest in my class. And and listen, I was naturally skinny. And I mean, when I say skinny, I mean, third world country skinny, okay? When I graduated high school, I was 6'1", 48 pounds. Okay, that's what I was. And like, that just never changed for me. So like, I remember coming through middle school and high school, as I look back on it, you know, like I was always comparing myself to others and how skinny I was, how slow I was. Uh, I made the varsity baseball team as a sophomore. And I'll never forget some of the juniors and seniors like giving me a hard time. Hey man, when you run, you look like you're riding an ostrich. I don't even know what that means, but like they were giving me a hard time. Like I had like, like, like the smallest, skinniest uniform, you know, it was like, I will take a youth medium, you know, and, and I just, I remember like seasons when it was warmer outside and I'm still trying to wear long sleeves kind of thing to hide the fact that I was so skinny and so small and I paid so much attention to like who my friends were compared to who others had in their friend group and what what groups I associated with and what people I hung out with and who liked me and who I liked in return and and I was so concerned about you know my batting average in relation to other people's and how I ran and how I looked and that was just such a part of my life and and then if, you know, like as I've kind of matured and come through that, I, I thought, you know, maybe maybe that kind of drove me to who I am today. And so I just, ha- I have to tell you, I don't mean to brag, but like, I, I I just took it as a challenge to become physically strong. And so I just wanted to show you a picture of me from the gym recently. I just, you know, like, I yeah, I mean, I don't, I, I feel uncomfortable bragging, but you know, like, you know, those years I thought, okay, I'm no longer gonna be the skinny kid. As you can see, I'm no longer the skinny kid. No, I, it's funny, like I look back on my life and um, I think, you know, the things that I compared myself to in middle school and high school, like largely I don't compare myself to those things anymore. Like I really don't care what I look like in relation to the way I cared when I was, you know, 14 or 15, and that's probably obvious to you, okay. I do not work out. I know it's shocking. Now I'm active, I try to take care of myself, but like, I'm not really hitting the gym every day, mostly because I got married. And I mean, she stuck with me, she got what she got. I conned her into this thing. And like, you know, why even try? Like, I feel like if I just bulk up now and take on the amazing physique, then the rest of our lives is just gonna be a disappointment. So I'm just, you know, I I don't work out. That's just not my thing. I take care of myself, but that's not my thing. And I don't really worry about that anymore. But here's what I've discovered as I've matured and as I've gotten older, I don't use the same comparables as I did in middle school and high school, but I use comparables all the same. They're not the same, but I use comparison the same. It's just different now that I'm older. What kind of house I live in, what kind of technology I have, what my family looks like. Isn't it amazing as we go through life, like like the things that seem to matter so much to us when we were 14 years old, don't matter the same when we're 44 years old, but other things matter just as importantly. And all of us end up in some way trying to evaluate our self-worth our identity based on how we compare to others. And you may be like me and you're like, yeah, I don't have the same set of comparables now at 44 or 34 or 64 as I did when I was 14, but I guarantee you have some set of comparables. They're just different. And today in our series called Voices, you know, we're thinking about the voices that are speaking into our lives the voices around us that, that in some way shape our identity. And today we're gonna to talk about comparison and the many, many, many voices of comparison that speak into our lives and our identity, our self-worth, because I believe this is one of the most vital issues that every single one of us face. Our identity, our self-worth in some form or fashion is rooted often in comparison. Maybe not the same way as when we were 14, but in some way, it's still tied to comparison. It's still comparing ourselves to others. Andy Stanley calls it living in the land of er, E-R, er, living in the land of er. We we all live in the land of er. We're trying to be pretty er, wealthy er, healthy er, happy er -er. (laughs) popular-er. Those of you who are single, married-er, right? You're looking for that. That person, so you can be like everybody else, and, and so if we 're honest, every single one of us in some form or fashion, maybe you are fourteen in the room today, and you 're like me when, when I was in middle school and high school, and you 're navigating those similar dynamics of how you look and how you fit in and who your friend group is and who you went to prom with, and what your dress looked like or your tucks look like in relation to others, and, and, and that 's that's for you right now a significant part of how you are fashioning your identity. Maybe you've graduated from that set of comparison data and now it's all about how much you make. Are you a six-figure income earner? What house you live in? What neighborhood you live in? What status you have? What your family looks like? Where you vacation? Has this ever happened you? You're on your way to vacation, you're perfectly happy, but on your way to vacation, you're scrolling through social media and you see someone else on vacation, you're going to Dollywood and they're going to Hawaii. Or maybe you're going to Hawaii and they're going to Dollywood. Right, exactly. See, that would never happen. But it never happened to you, like you're going somewhere and you're like, you're feeling good about it and you're happy and you're like, oh, I'm so glad to be with my family. And you start scrolling through social media and you're like, oh man, did you see so-and-so? They're going to Hawaii. And all of a sudden your vacation, wherever you're going, doesn't look quite as good. So the comparison data may shift, but comparison works the same. And as we think about these voices of comparison that are bombarding us, we need to learn how to navigate it. Because I believe this is the most critical aspect of identity and fulfillment that we have to navigate in our culture. So let me give you a key takeaway, all right, that will guide our time today. Here's what I want you to see. Contentment ends where comparison begins. I encourage you to write this down. I'm telling you, this is so huge for where we are as a society right now. Contentment ends where comparison begins. And what I wanna to do today is offer three principles about comparison that are essential, and then also give you three practices to help you to overcome the comparison crisis that all of us can find ourselves in. All right, so three principles and then three practices to help us lean into contentment and not comparison. Okay, first of all, make a note of this, all right? Comparison flows from our sinful condition, not our secular culture. Now you and I need to understand this critical piece of information. This is actually foundational as we seek to navigate this this issue of comparison from which we try to draw our identity and our significance and our self worth. Okay, I just, listen, you need to understand the key issue with comparison is not it's prevalence in our culture, it's, it's prevalence in our hearts. And comparison rises out of primarily our sinful condition, not our secular culture. Let me say it to you this way. Our culture simply reflects our condition. Now, to be sure, our culture makes this incredibly difficult. In fact, if you look at the history of the world, okay, seriously, the history of the world, there has never been a time in our history as human beings, that overcoming the comparison crisis has been more difficult. Just social media alone creates for us a culture of comparison that is unavoidable, unavoidable. Check this out. There are what, a little over 7 billion people in the world today, 7 billion people, do you realize? Over 1 billion of these people have an Instagram account. One out of 7 billion have Instagram. Okay, check this out. Over 3 billion have a Facebook account. Almost half of the world has a Facebook account. Literally, I have traveled the world over the years, working with our missionary partners and church planners, been all over the world. I've been to many third world countries. I'm telling you, I've been to numerous third world countries where people don't have three square meals a day, but they have an old cracked cell phone with a Facebook account. I'm not kidding you. I've got many friends on Facebook who live in third world countries and they wish me happy birthday once a year. It's an amazing thing. Three billion people have Facebook. One billion people have Instagram. You have TikTok, you have Pinterest. Just making sure I didn't hear you men on that. Okay, just making sure. Uh, Dude, it's crazy. Okay, so this is a real thing. Our culture right now makes it impossible to live life without comparison. I mean, it's impossible. You're going to fake You're going to deal with it, right? Our, our society is a real thing, and and here's what happens with the culture in which we live, with social media, with all the marketing uh, strategies that are around us, right? Magazines. We've got we've got uh, emails. We we've we've got uh, images and pictures and posts and news story. I mean, everything. Like it's just you just can't live in this world today without in some way interacting with the voices of comparison. And here's what happens. Like I said, whenever you begin to play the comparison game, where that begins, contentment ends, because you become aware of things that speak to your heart and seem to make you aware of something that you're missing. You weren't missing it until you saw it. And then you see it, and then you feel like you need it. You know what it reminds me of? It reminds me as a kid, going back to my childhood again, of the greatest store in the history of mankind. Can I get an amen for Kmart? Anybody remember Kmart? Okay, now I know a lot of you in this room are young and you never had the joy of shopping at Kmart. And I just want to say to you, I am so sorry you missed out. Okay, Kmart was was life, okay? Like you went to Kmart for everything. And when you went into Kmart, some of you know what I'm about to say, right? When you went into Kmart, you would find a blue light special. Can somebody just testify? Can somebody testify? Come on. Oh, that was so much fun. Oh man, you'd be into strolling through a Kmart, you could get in. Kmart was the original Walmart, Target. I mean, listen, these, these, these companies got nothing on Kmart. Kmart, was, Kmart's gonna be in the eternal kingdom, K kingdom, that's what it's gonna be, all right? And I'm just telling you, it was amazing. And you'd walk through, remember that little cart? It was this little cart, you'd roll around with a pole and a blue light on it. And like you walking in Kmart, you need five things, right? You're rolling through, you're checking off your five things. You get your cart, you're headed to the checkout line. And then the voice of an angel would come across. Ladies and gentlemen, uh, uh, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for shopping Kmart. We now have a blue light special on aisle seven, blue light. You're like, check out. And you go in aisle seven. Because on aisle seven is a three pack of Hanes underwear for $5.99. I don't need any new underwear, but I'm gonna get it. It's a blue light special. Ladies, some of you taking some new pack of underwear home to your husband. I mean, you know what your husband say? Honey, I don't need this. I still got all my underwear from college. It's good, it's good, right? (laughs) You're like, no, honey, I got you. Listen, it was was $5.99 for three. It's a blue light special. I didn't know I needed it until I saw I needed it, right? And and if I could summarize where we are as a society right now with everything we're easily bombarded with, it used to be you had to see it on television. It used to be you had to see it on a magazine cover at the checkout lane. It used to be you had to see it in someone in close proximity to you. Now you can see it as soon as you get up in the morning. Bam, staring you right in the face. 6:30 in the morning. Blue light specials. You're vacationing at Disney World but somebody else is vacationing in Hawaii. Your prom dress was awesome but somebody else's is even more awesome. Your family looks beautiful in your beach photos but their family somehow their picture looks even more beautiful. You have more than you need, but when you look at these people around you, it still doesn't seem to be enough. We all live in the land of Ur. Someone else is wealthier, successfuler, prettier, skinnier, popularer, better marrieder-er, and, and that's the culture in which we live. So make no mistake about it. I, I totally get it. We live in the toughest time imaginable when it comes to the comparison crisis. But with having said all of that, listen to me very, very carefully, our culture is not the problem. Our hearts are the problem. Our hearts are the problem. And our society only reflects our sin, Our culture only reflects our condition. We're the ones in, honestly, in our selfishness, and our rebellion against God and his goodness, we are the ones who are constantly looking to outside indicators to make us feel significant when it comes to our identity. It's on us. I'm going to give you some examples here. Let me just roll through human history. Just give you a couple examples. I just want you to see that this is on us. And, and so there's some practical steps we're going to talk about, but I'm, I'm telling you, you the, the most important issue is, is your heart, my heart, our hearts. And this goes all the way back to the very beginning. Let me Let me show you Genesis 3 here, right? Remember when the devil here is tempting Adam and Eve. Now he appeals to pride. All sin is rooted in pride, but... Look at the devil's tactic here. The the tactic he uses in appealing to pride is comparison. It's the same game he's playing today. He played it back then. Here's what he said to Adam and Eve. God knows that your eyes will be open. You eat of that tree of knowledge of good and evil. God said, don't eat from. Now you can eat from it. God knows that your eyes will be open as soon as you eat it and you will be like God. Adam and Eve lived in a world with no sin, brokenness, no shame, no humiliation, no embarrassment, right? It was like, it was Eden. It was a perfect world. And, and, and they live in this environment free from shame and guilt and brokenness. And it wasn't good enough for them. You know why? Because the devil exposed their pride through comparison in saying to the man and the woman, yeah, I mean, you got it good, but you're not God. And God's trying to rob you of a blessing. So if you eat of this fruit, you will be like him. Do you see the comparison crisis? Yeah, you're good, but you're not God. And if you eat this fruit, you can be like God. You say, how in the world could two people In a perfect world, mess it up. Well, let me ask you this. How could a blessed people like you and me live in the world we live in with all the blessings of God around us and mess it up? Because we got a heart problem. And can I just be brutally honest with you? God is just not enough for us. We feel like we gotta have more. We want his rule and reign. We want his power. We want his knowledge. We wanna be God. And, and and this game of comparison is what got Adam and Eve to lean into their pride and ultimately sin and rebel against God. And the same thing happens to us. So let me fast forward to Solomon. Now let's fast forward and let's go to the wisest man who ever lived. A man who's now writing to his sons about things to avoid in life because they're so dangerous. Let me show you what he says here in the book of Ecclesiastes. This is an incredible book written later in life by the wisest man, King Solomon, who ever lived. And here's what he says. Look at this. I observe that most people are motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. Comparison. He's saying most people are driven like In an unhealthy manner driven, like neglect their family driven, like neglect God driven, right? Like make foolish decisions driven, okay? Like most people are driven, motivated to success because they envy their neighbors. They have it good, but it's not good enough. But this too, uh, here's what he said. This is sons, he's talking to his son. This is meaningless. You're chasing after the wind. You'll never get it. And then he says this, I love this. Fools fold their idle hands, leading them to ruin. So he's not saying don't work. He's not saying be lazy. He's not talking about hard work and diligence. No, 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 fools fold their idle hands. But here's what he says, check this out, verse six. And yet, better to have one handful with quietness, with contentment, than two handfuls with hard work and chasing the wind. Here's what he's saying, work hard. Make the most of your God-given opportunities, but leave a hand open to use what God has given you in a balanced, healthy way. You know what we have today? A society full of people who with both hands clenched, trying to hang on to everything they have, just running, 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 trying to keep up with the Joneses, comparing, 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 listening to the voices of comparison and trying to be better, healthier, prettier, stronger, happier, and, and, and you got two hands clenched, just running after it, maybe neglecting your family, maybe putting yourself in debt unnecessarily, maybe making foolish decisions, maybe leaning into your ego, making, maybe burning bridges. You're, you're just running full force toward being better than those around you and Solomon says, you're gonna get to the end of your life and you're gonna look back and you're like, man, I never grabbed it. I was chasing the wind. He says, better to have one hand closed, working hard and one hand open. And then let me me fast forward to the, to the ministry of Jesus. Did, did, did Jesus ever con, like confront this? Did Jesus ever deal with people who were caught up in the comparison crisis? Oh yeah. And, and ch- this may surprise you, check this out. It actually comes with some of his closest disciples. And I don't know if you noticed this before, maybe not, but, but Peter and John had like this little rivalry. It's pretty fascinating. It's just a little rivalry between Peter, who was like forceful, Out front, uh, vocal, right? I mean, Peter, and then John. Who, who was beloved by Jesus in a special way. And Peter and John kind of have this little rivalry going and we get some hints of it in the scripture. Check this out. John 20. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. Mary now, Mary goes to the tomb and she finds the stones rolled away and Jesus isn't there. And so I just, this is John. Okay. This is John's gospel. John's writing this and, and check this out. So she goes and she finds Peter and the other disciple. <coughs> The one Jesus loved. Now, if you don't have very good people skills, let me give you a piece of advice. As you're interacting with people this week, do not refer to yourself in the third person. Are you with me on that? Like, that's an indication of pride, right? And notice John who's writing the gospel refers to himself in the third person as the one Jesus loved. And so Mary goes and she finds Peter and the other disciple, you know, the one whom Jesus loved. And she said, they've taken the Lord's body out of the tomb and we don't know where they have put him. And so Peter and the other disciple start out for the tomb. And I love this, this is so amazing. And and they were both running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. (laughs) This is so good. Like this is the greatest event in the history of the world. This is the most game changing, life changing event in the history of the world. Jesus, Resurrection from the dead, right? And now John's giving it to us and he's reporting on what happened. And, and, and John's like, oh, I bet people are wondering who got there first. No, bro, we don't care. Jesus is alive. Like none of us are naturally thinking, I wonder who got to the tomb first. But John tells us, like we're gonna see John in heaven one day. Man, how did you get there so fast? Did you run track as a kid? John makes it known. Hey, Peter and the other disciple were running, but the other disciple left Peter in the dust and he got there first. Now check this out. He stooped in and he looked in and saw the linen wrappings lying there, but he didn't go in. And then, and then way later, Simon Peter arrived and he also went in and he noticed the linen wrappings lying there and the cloth. that had covered Jesus' head, was folded up, and it was lying there from the other wraps. And, um, and he got there second. And, and then check this out. And uh, the disciple who had reached the tomb first, remember him? <laughs> remember the one that got there first? He also went in, he saw and believed. And, um, and John just kind of highlights this. It seems just like a little bit of a rivalry. It's just, I mean, these details are just almost hysterical to me. And so here's what happens next. Uh, these closest associates of Jesus begin to interact with him. And it's the most precious thing that transpires with Peter and Jesus. Do you, do you remember what happened after the crucifixion of Jesus? Remember, remember that Peter denied Jesus how many times? Three times. I mean, Jesus is crucified, the disciples, they, they couldn't grasp it. I mean. You know, it wasn't until they looked back on what Jesus had taught them that it really clicked. So at that moment, they're just devastated. And, you know, Peter's walking around and there's people like, hey, aren't you like one of his closest associates? And Peter's like, no, that's not me. Three times he denies Jesus. And now Jesus is alive. He's been raised from the dead and he's with Peter and and the others, right? They're all there. And check this out. And Jesus restores Peter. You know how he does it? with three statements. It's just awesome. It was three denials and now there's three affirmations. And Jesus says, Peter, do you love me? And and Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, then feed my sheep. And then Jesus leans in, he says, now, Peter, do you love me? And he says, yes, Lord, I love you. He says, well, I want you to feed my sheep. A third time, Jesus says, do you love me? And he uses a different word in the original language, much stronger word, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, Lord, I love you. And, and Jesus says, I want you to feed my sheep. You're good, we're good. Isn't that a precious restoration? But it wasn't enough for Peter. Let me show you why. Right after that amazing restoration, and you and I would read that and we're like, wow, how gracious that Jesus restores a man who publicly denied him just days earlier. But they weren't good enough for Peter. This is how messed up our hearts are, not just his, ours. Because here's what happened in that moment, Peter then turns around and he saw behind them the disciple Jesus loved, that's John here, the one who had leaned over to Jesus during the supper and said, Lord, who will betray you, right? John, and Peter says to Jesus, look at this. He says, well, what about him? Is that not pathetic? Peter, do you love me? Lord, I know I denied you and I'm humiliated, but yes, I promise you, I love you. Do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I promise you, I love you. Do you really love me, Peter? Yes, then here's my role for you. You're gonna be a man who leads forward and you're you're gonna feed my flock. You're gonna feed my sheep. That's what I need you to do. Peter, Uh, what about him? Really? And Jesus just basically like takes him behind the woodshed. And here's what Jesus said, um, excuse me, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? As for you, you just follow me in the way I've described. Translation, mind your business. Why are you worried about John? I'm talking to you. I'm talking about your role. I'm talking about your identity. I'm talking about your status. I'm talking about your responsibilities. Is that not enough for you, Peter? Peter's like, yeah, but what about John? Was he don't have to feed your sheep? What are you, and John, Jesus is like, hey, whatever my will is for him is my will for him. My will for you is that you're gonna feed my sheep. And Peter's like, yeah, but what about him? And I, so listen, Adam, Solomon, Peter, you, me. What's the greatest problem with respect to comparison? It's not our secular culture, it's our sinful condition. And only the salvation of Jesus can cover that and only our leaning into his grace and love can bring the contentment that we desperately need. because we have a condition problem, not a culture problem. All right, secondly, write this down, write this down. Second principle of comparison, it devalues your unique identity. Listen, we need to understand the source here. The source is our our sinful hearts, right? That's the source here. And and so our heart, here's what our sinful hearts do. It it, it devalues, our hearts devalue our unique identity in Christ. In comparison, can make you feel better than you should, but it can also make you feel worse than you should. And neither one of these things glorify your father, right? The fact of the matter is God has made you fearfully and wonderfully. God has sent his son to redeem you graciously and unconditionally. God has caused his spirit to live in you powerfully and wonderfully. And you are, write this down, you are one of one. You are one of one and God loves you. God is pleased with you. If you are one of his children in Christ, God's power through his spirit dwells in you. You are more loved and accepted than you can ever imagine. And whether or not you are prettier or wealthier or more successful-er than those that you're comparing yourself to do not matter at all to your heavenly father who loves you and receives you for who you are in him. You are one of one, right? You are one of one. Here's what the Psalmist said. I love this, Psalm 139. How precious are your thoughts about me, O God? Some of you need to hear this word. You're getting up in the morning discouraged. You're beating yourself up with comparison. You're living in doubt. You're living in insecurity. You're trying to tether your identity to all these voices of comparison around you. Listen to the word of God. How precious are your thoughts about me? They can't even be numbered. I can't even count them, the psalmist says. They outnumber the grains of the sand and whenever I wake up in the morning, you are with me. You are more loved and more accepted than you could ever imagine. Let me give you four things quickly that comparison does to devalue your identity. Here's what happened. Four things quickly. Number one, discouragement, discouragement. More often than not, we don't feel better about ourselves when we compare ourselves to others, we feel worse about ourselves. Secondly, debt, debt. The reality is most of the debt that people carry is debt rooted in false identity. Trying to keep up with everybody else so that we feel better about ourselves. Third, dysfunctional dating. It grieves my heart to see incredible young people lower their standards and who they marry because they don't see themselves the way their heavenly father sees them. They take the available person as opposed to the right person. And if you're single here today, I want you to know you are more loved and more accepted than you can ever imagine. And you wait for the person who truly honors King Jesus and the expectations that he has for your spouse. That person will be worth the wait. I promise you that person is worth the wait. So what happens when we listen to the comparison voices, we devalue our identity that leads to discouragement, sometimes debt, sometimes dysfunctional dating, and then fourth disunity. Sometimes we become so envious of others because they have a role that we don't have or they have an influence we don't have or they have an opportunity that we don't have that it creates a wedge. And, and so here's what happens. Our identity is, is, is just diminished through the voices of comparison. And we fail to keep in mind what Paul said, in Ephesians 2.10, check this out. We are God's masterpieces. We are his workmanship. We are his masterpieces. He's created us anew in Christ so that we do the good things he's planned for us long ago. You are a masterpiece of God. You are one of one. And whenever you listen to those voices of comparison, you diminish your unique identity before your heavenly father. You say, well, do pastors get caught up in this? Yes. Can I just keep it real? I can't tell you how many Sunday afternoons and Sunday evenings I've been discouraged after a great day. Man, we're blessed here at Bell Shoals. I'm telling you, God's doing something special and I'm honored to be a part of it, I really am. And, and we've got Sundays, if you haven't noticed, we baptized 20, 25, 30, 35 people. Bam, people giving their life to Christ, coming and being baptized. It's amazing. And and I go home like many of you and excited and blessed and encouraged and humbled and overwhelmed. And then what happens at night lying in bed? Start scrolling through the Twitter timeline, the Facebook timeline. Like, oh, we baptized 35 today. Look over here, this person baptized 70. I think, man, what am I doing wrong? Why isn't God blessing our church like that? You think, man, I just preached this awesome sermon and like, it only got like 2,500 views. Look at this person, man, they got like 100,000 views. That sermon wasn't nearly as good. Trust me, I know. I'm just keeping it real. Is that okay? And I think back to my life starting out. uh, Y'all listen to me. We have Sundays, we baptize more people than we're in attendance in the first church I pastored. Some of your life groups are twice as large as the first church God called me to pastor. 20 years ago, I would have given my right arm to be a part of a church that's baptized in 30, 40, 50 people. And yet, if I'm honest, in the past few years, there's been Sunday nights before I go to bed, I'm actually discouraged thinking that's not enough. Now, isn't that pathetic? Go ahead, you can say it. Yeah, yeah thank you, thank you. That's pathetic. It's path- I know, I know, it's pathetic. Glad my wife's not here. She would be saying amen, I know. I know, she's at home saying amen to the computer screen. I know, hi, honey, I love you. I know, I'm pathetic, I know. It's pathetic. In fact, it's so pathetic, seriously. You know what I did several years? I actually did this several years ago. I, I have a very small social media presence in my life. I'm not on Twitter anymore. Uh, I don't scroll through Instagram. I interact with Facebook very little and it's been the best thing for me. It's been the best thing for me. It has. It has. I was just with a group of amazing leaders this past week, people from all over the country, people seeing God bless their ministries in a great way. We spent some time with John Maxwell. And John Maxwell said to us, small group, small setting, it was super fun just to interact with him. And and he he just kind of got real, you know, it wasn't a, one some big speech and presentation. He just kind of spoke from his years of experience. You know what John Maxwell taught us? John Maxwell said this. He says, success is a lousy teacher. Because if you draw your identity from success, it feeds your ego and it feeds your influence, but it's never enough. Because there's always someone else with a little bit more success in some other area. And that's why it doesn't matter if you're in ministry, if you're in business, you're in medicine, you're in law, it doesn't matter. Listen to me. My problem is your problem. I have a heart that has a natural inclination to draw its identity by convincing itself that it's better than everybody else. Instead of tethering its identity to the love and acceptance of our heavenly father. We all live in the land of Ur, what does that mean? Well, it it means that we devalue our identity and that's a danger. Okay, and then lastly, check this out, Just, just make a note of this quickly, all right? It discourages our unique roles. So comparison comes from our sinful condition more than our secular society. It devalues our identity and it discourages our role. Okay, listen to me. The fastest way to discourage your role in the church, your role in the world, your contribution to the kingdom, the fastest way to discourage that is to compare it to somebody else's. Listen, how about, how about Eloise in that Serve Sunday video? How amazing was that? I love Eloise, she is, uh, some of you may not know her. She's, she's just a gift to our staff team. She served on our staff team for many years. She's awesome. I didn't, yeah, she's amazing. I love, we love Eloise. I didn't know she could run a soundboard. I didn't know she was into heavy metal, had no idea. I mean, how awesome was that? I think, wow, what an opportunity in a couple of weeks for you to take a Sunday, no strings attached and invest your life as a contributor and not a consumer. Hey. Be a part of our creative team. Check out our production team, serving kids ministry. Come check out what God's doing in student ministry. Come check out what what it might look like to be a a life group leader. I'm just telling you, there's so many opportunities to use your gifts in a meaningful, fulfilling way, but let me give you the danger that's gonna happen over the course of time. Your sinful heart is not only gonna try to devalue your identity, it's gonna try to discourage your role because before long, you're gonna say, yeah, I'm doing this, but this person's doing this. And I'm, I'm leading this many people, but look at this person. They just started this life group six months ago and they're already twice the size of my life group. Who the heck cares? Whenever you get, jump into the comparison crisis, you lose. It'll rob you of your opportunities and the joy that comes in serving and making a difference to King Jesus, Here's what Paul said, Romans 12. All right, just check this out, Romans 12. In His grace, God's given us different gifts for doing certain things well. We all have a role to play. We all have different gifts and opportunities and influence and all the rest. So look at this. So if God's given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. If, if your gift is serving others, serve them well. If you're a teacher, then teach well. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. If your gift is d- to discourage others, find another church. Okay, no, that's not in there. Okay, sorry. I'm just kidding. got are not kidding. Okay, all right, so. But look at that. If if you have the gift of encouragement, encourage. If you have the gift of prophesying, prophesy. If you have the gift of teaching, teach. If you have a gift of generosity, then give generously. If God's given you the gift of leadership, take that seriously and lead. If you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. In other words, stop comparing yourself to others and start delighting in what God has entrusted to you. Right, that's the calling we have. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how your gifts stack up in comparison to someone else. God's not not gonna judge your life based on how you compare to others. The one word God gives us for success in His economy is faithfulness. Are you faithful to do what God has entrusted you to do? What does Jesus say? On the day of judgment, when we're kneeling before him for his children, his sons and daughters, we will hear these words, well done my good and faithful servant, not my good and prettier servant, hello? Not my good and prettier servant, not my good and skinnier servant, which I wish that were actually the case, okay? Not my good and wealthier, servant, my good and faithful servant. And God's not going to judge you for what he's gifted me to do. And God's not going to judge me for what he's gifted you to do or some other leader to do. The issue is of whether or not we are faithful. So here's what comparison does. It flows from our sinful condition, not our secular culture. It devalues our identity. It discourages our role. And so quickly three things practically you can do to overcome it. All right, take these down quickly. This is the lightning round. Okay, and then I'm gonna cut you out of here. Here we go, number one, turn off the voices that draw you into comparison. Some of you need to turn them off. Hey, young ladies, scrolling through TikTok and Instagram especially, chill. You are so much more valuable than what our culture is trying to sell you. In fact, what you look like in relationship to all these other Insta models is the last thing the Lord is concerned about. You are one of one. And it's time that some of you start valuing yourself as one of one. Some of you are like me, you know, you're leading in some capacity, you're a teacher, you're serving our our school system somewhere, maybe you're here at our academy, you're you're leading in medicine in some way, or in business, or law, or something, you know, you're you're, you're out there, you're killing it every day, you're doing your very, very best to provide for your family and to to leverage your influence, but you know, you find yourself at night, scrolling through whatever social media platforms you have, and you let those voices come into your life, and maybe you, you went to bed encouraged, but you went to sleep discouraged, turn it off, Turn it off. I don't know what it is for you. It's not just social media. I mean, that's, a, that's an issue as we've discussed, but I, whatever it is. Hey, some of you are just hanging around bad company. You need to make better friend choices. You're around people all the time. They're like maintaining a value system that's not one consistent with the scriptures. And it's drawing you into stupid decisions that that are leading you to comparison and maybe you're taking on debt that you shouldn't be taking on, you just, whatever it is, listen to me, turn off the voices that draw you into comparison. Secondly, write this down. Cultivate gratitude as the counterbalance to comparison. Can I show you what the apostle Paul said, 1 Timothy 6, true godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. If you have contentment, after all, look at this, We brought nothing into this world when we came into it and we will take nothing with us when we leave. And then he makes this statement. Now this would rock, this will rock the world of our culture. If we have enough food and clothing, we'll be content. Bro, you ain't ever lived in the United States because food is not just food. I mean, we need Chick-fil-A, we need Burns. See, I'm sitting the music now, the burns, take out. Okay, see that, hear that? Hear the Holy Spirit, right? We don't just need food, we need good food. We don't just need clothing, we need nice clothing. And Paul, excuse me, bro, you left out the Lexus, you left out the gated community, you left out the second home. Am I only speaking to me this morning? Is the Holy Spirit speaking to anybody else in the room today? Come on, like Paul, right? Like you missing some stuff in here, bro. Turn off the voices that draw you into comparison and cultivate gratitude as it's counterbalance. Because Reality Check, probably all of us connecting online in the room today have more than we need. And if we're honest, we would say, it's still not enough. And Paul says, here's, here's the truth. If you got clothes on your back, you got a place to lay your head at night, that's all you need, that's all you need. The rest is just like window dressing. And so can I, listen, if you're struggling with this, I just wanna challenge you, turn off the voices and hey, do this, here's what I want you to do tomorrow. Seriously, here's what I want you to do tomorrow. When you get up in the morning, do not pick up your phone first thing. Do not check your email. Do not scroll through your social media platform. Do not look at your text strands. When you get up tomorrow, before you do anything else, okay, maybe use the restroom first, those of us who are older, That usually comes around three or four o'clock. Okay, but like when you get up, before you pick up your phone, here's what I want you to do. I want you to thank God for five blessings in your life. Thank God for five blessings in your life. And I want you to be mindful of those tomorrow. Will you do that? And then when you check your social or you check your email and you get busy with your day, just maybe your heart will be tethered to gratitude and your identity will be tethered to the good and gracious giver of all these amazing things in your life that we so often take for granted. Five things you thank God for. You know what we used to say when I was pastoring my little church 20 years ago, God was so gracious to give us that amazing congregation. You know, when you used to sing, count your blessings, name them one by one. Anybody remember that? Count your many blessings, see what God has done. And then lastly, and with this we'll go, check it out. Stay in your lane, fix your eyes on Jesus. Your lane is not my lane. Your lane is not your neighbor's lane. You stay in your lane. Here's what the author of Hebrews says. So. Now that we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. Comparison certainly falls into that category, right? And run with endurance the race that God has set before us. How? Keeping our eyes on Jesus, the champion who initiates and perfects our faith. Here's what I know, I never ran track. Remember the ostrich thing I told you about? I never ran track. But here's what I know about running track. If you're trying to run in your lane and cross the finish line first, the the, the last thing you should ever do is run by looking back and seeing who's around you. It will put you out of your lane and it will slow you down, right? And spiritually speaking, get your eyes off what God is doing in someone else's life and family. Get your eyes off of how someone else looks. Get your eyes off of where someone else is vacationing. Get your eyes off of what someone else makes. Get your eyes off what someone else's influence is and get your eyes on Jesus. Run in your lane and get to the finish, right? That's what he's called us to do. So how do we overcome this? Oh man, we gotta turn off those voices, cultivate gratitude as a counterbalance and stay in our lane. And when we get to the finish line one day, we will kneel, will we not? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And we will hear those words, well done, my good and faithful. May that be the case for all.